for Paul, it, the faith of Christ, as exemplified by his going to the cross, became something that was such a great and liberating moment for all of humanity that all that he believed that that faith could change the world. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everybody. On today's show, we're going to be continuing a three-part discussion that we've been having on Christianity, specifically Pauline Christianity. And on today's show, we are going to be discussing the crucifixion and the importance and the central place it has in Pauline Christianity. And also, maybe we'll be discussing a little bit about how modern Christianity seems to be lacking um, a major focus on the crucifixion. Uh, because I've been reading a book called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ by the author Fleming Rutledge. <clears throat> And she's a scholar and a theologian. I believe she was also uh, practicing in one of the denominations, but um, I can't remember which one uh, it was off the top of my head. But she discusses the fact that in modern America, in the West, really in general, there's been a reticence to focus on the crucifixion for favor of more of a positive attitude, more of a glory-driven focus on Christianity and the redemption and resurrection of Christ, and a neglect of the, the real horror of the crucifixion and the crucifix and what it stood for, and why Paul would have to say to his, um, in the, which letter was it where he writes about the shame, about he wasn't ashamed of Christ, Harrison? Oh, I can't remember. I can't no, remember. Either Corinthians or Galatians, I think. Yeah, so either Corinthians or Galatians, he writes about um, how he's not ashamed of of Christ and how he felt the need to to be adamant about the fact that the crucifixion was an object of shame. It was an object of great and tremendous shame because it was meant to degrade and dehumanize and slowly and brutally murder someone for all passerby to walk by and to spit and to share in the degradation and dehumanization of the individual who was up on the cross, on the crucifix. And this became the central image such an irreligious image, but such a central image to Christianity that it shocked many of the more, you know, noble and intelligence, uh, the intelligentsia of Rome. And it was also seen by other religious folk as being just too worldly. But for Paul, it, the faith of Christ, as exemplified by his going to the cross, became something that was such a great and liberating moment for all of humanity that all that he believed that that faith could change the world and could bring in an in a new creation. And so today we're going to be discussing how that's possible and what exactly he meant by that and what the crucifix really stands for. Yeah, because there are a few different strands of thought that you can get to when looking at this. One's just the historical perspective and what happened or what didn't happen, and then what uh, what Paul's perspective was on it, and then what it actually meant to Paul and what it might mean, the, the significance and meaning it might hold for people today still. If we just start looking back at some of the things that you mentioned, Corey, about the actual history, if you look at what crucifixion was and you know what it meant at the time, you know, it was the, the way to execute um, 
certain criminals, especially rebels, you know, what we today, well, back then the Roman empire was experiencing a, a problem with rebellions, you know, all over the place. And specifically in Judea, in Judea, you had these rebellions popping up and groups of zealous Judeans that today, if that were happening today, they'd be called terror. They'd be called terrorists. Um, these were like, if you think about the Sakari, um, the, basically the, the assassin wing of the, uh, of the rebels, they were, um, you know, going around assassinating officials and people that were, had, uh, maybe too, too good a relationship with the Roman overlords. So they would be, they would be killing Jews and Romans, you know, whoever they could get their knives into. And so this was something of a problem for the Romans, of course. No empire likes seeing rebellions on its borders, even in a backwater place like uh, Judea. And uh, <clears throat> so that's kind of the, the, just the historical background of this. If you actually read Paul's letters, there's not a lot of history in there. In fact, some, some scholars, mostly, mostly ones in recent years, um, have kind of gotten out of the mental straitjacket of the kind of church dogma that's that's been so prevalent for you know well for hundreds and thousands of years literally that they're trying that some have looked at the looked at the texts trying to take off the blinders of all the the force of all that religious dogma and doctrines that have built up over the years because most people, like when you look at the New Testament, the first books in there are the Gospels. So they read the Gospel stories, and that's now the foundation that they start from. Okay, this is what happened. And then you get to the letters, you get to Paul's stuff, and you read them. And then everything that you read in Paul's letters is then referred back to the Gospels. But the new kind of, the new approach that a lot of scholars are taking is to actually look at things chronologically. Because the letters were the first things written. Gospels were written up to a hundred years after the letters. So when you look, when you try to limit yourself just to the letters, you say, okay, well, what does Paul actually say? Leaving out all of that other stuff. I mean, it's a, it's a mental effort to do that. Okay. Well, what does Paul actually say? What are the elements that are in there? Totally disregarding everything in the gospels. Then afterwards, then you come back to the gospels and say, okay, well, what's the same? What's different? Then you can look at each gospel in particular and say, what's the difference between each gospel? What are the what can be discerned about the motivations of each writer? Because things change, details change, important um, the big details change. So there are what you could call different agendas or just different purposes in the writing of all these different texts in the New Testament. But when you look at them chronologically, very you can find very interesting things in them, and you can consistently interpret Paul's letters, for instance, without any historical um, events in mind. You, there are, that's what the, the Jesus mythicists do, or at least some of them, is to look at Paul's letters and, and conclude that, well, you could, you could look at Paul's letters and conclude that, he, that when he's talking about Jesus and the crucifixion, he's actually not talking about any actual historical event. These are kind of mythical in the sense that Paul saw them as real events, but real in some kind of um, spiritual way. That uh, and you look at a, a text like the Ascension of Isaiah, which is this apocryphal, apocryphal text um, that it, it's its own kind of gospel, and you have Jesus 
descending from the highest spheres of heaven into the lower spheres of heaven, and that's where he's crucified. He's actually crucified in heaven. He never actually, you know, incarnates on earth and dies as a human being. He uh, assumes a human form and then dies in the, you know, essentially in the astral plane. So there, those ideas were going around at the time, and it looks like you, uh, Paul probably had those kind of ideas. And then it's within a couple generations after that, when you have the gospel, well, a generation, maybe not even a generation after Paul, you have the gospel of Mark written, which is the first gospel. And that entire gospel can be interpreted allegorically. Most, if not all of the kind of narrative events in it can be, can be seen as, um, essentially, uh, what's the best way to put it? Well, written in this narrative form, taking taking inspiration from, for instance, the books of Kings in the Old Testament. You've got the Elijah-Elisha narratives. And what you can see Paul doing is taking that story and then basically rewriting it with different characters and changing the, changing the outcomes in certain ways to make a point, which is essentially what the Old Testament writers were doing too. You look at, all, all of, uh, look at some of the books in the Old Testament that were written as if they were historical narratives but were written hundreds of years after the fact. It's, they're writing essentially allegories using historical things that, you know, little tidbits here and there, but often getting the history all mangled, like in Book of Daniel, I believe, where um, he's writing about all of this Iranian, like Persian history, and getting the people mi mixed up and not really knowing who is who. Um, but, I mean, they're just characters in the story to make a point. Mm -hmm. And so that's basically what Mark was doing. And then, but once you have that gospel of this story of Jesus that Mark's written as this allegory, then... When you just have that story and you don't know that it's an allegory, it's very easy to say, okay, well, this is the actual history then. Well, now I'm going to take off from that. And that's essentially what, um, what, what the kind of historical view of Christianity has been ever since, is taking these allegorical stories as the basis of history when it looks like it was actually a progression of a more, a more um, like spiritual, almost archetypal, but archetypal isn't the best word for it, approach of dealing with these things in the in like higher realities and then having this story set on earth to embody those things and then taking the allegories as as literal truth and then going with it but none of that's actually necessary you don't i think and i think this is one of the stumbling blocks that a lot of modern christians have is that they think that they think that they'll be somehow sinning you know doing something wrong if they if, don't take it literally. If they don't take it literally. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't have to take it literally. Like I said, like I think it was a few weeks ago we were reading from something from Gurdjieff, and Gurdjieff said, all of, your, all of your saints, all of your gods have to die in you. And don't worry, like your saints won't be offended, right? It's like, Jesus won't be offended if you don't believe in him, you know, if you believe in Jesus in a particular way. It's not how it works. Um, kind of, we, we have freedom on, on this planet to actually learn something. To learn a whole bunch of things, and that that necessitates a little bit of doubt in order to in order to gain something out of it. You can totally you can totally um, reject all of your previous beliefs, and nothing will be lost because if there was anything good in there, you can find it again, and it'll and it'll it'll come back to you um, in a in a more enriched form than you had previously. So you've got nothing to lose by um, by entertaining doubts about the historicity of Jesus, for instance. Well. A few things come up as you were saying all that, Harrison, and and in your intro, Corey, and that is that um, the the literalness of the crucifixion. Uh, there was a criticism of the movie uh, "The Passion of the Christ," which came out a few years ago, made by Mel Gibson, 
where it's just about 40 minutes to an hour of watching Christ get flayed and, and watching his suffering uh, to the exclusion of any more kind of nuanced or metaphysical, uh, in my opinion, uh, truths that were trying to be conveyed in these allegorical stories, That, uh, as you put it. In the past couple of weeks, we've made mention of uh, the crucifixion of the heart, the circumcision of the heart, where all of these religious truths are being experienced, conveyed on an emotional, psychological, and visceral level, ideally, where they're ideas, where they're, um, and no less valid because they're ideas that don't necessarily have this uh, one-to-one component with physical reality, per se. And it seems to me that when a film or a piece of writing or analysis gets too hung up on the on not the symbolism or, or the metaphorical significance of an event such as the crucifixion, it, it loses sight of uh, the meaning that's inherent in such a representation, in such a, uh, an act. Mm-hmm. Well, the, um, I wanted to make, make one comment on that about the <clears throat> if you take let's say the I, w- I want to go back to the mythicists in the bible studies camp camps you have basically two opposing views generally you don't really find anyone in the middle you've got the hardcore believers the the who who um like take the, everything literally within that group kind of bordering on that group you've got the more scholarly approach the, these are the the christians who um Usually, teach at universities. Actually, get uh, you know PhDs from from pretty you know well well respected. Well, not, I wouldn't necessarily say well respected universities, but kind of more secular universities, but that have their own theology departments and are kind of like well respected among the wider community, as opposed to just the you know the Bible schools essentially. And those scholars, they'll they'll be a bit more open to. Um, to questioning the total literal interpretation of everything. So you get you get some nuance there. But they're still in the kind of the, the true believer camp. And then you get the atheist, like the hardcore atheist, um, like anti-religion people on the other side. And most of the mythicists, if not all of them, um, well, a lot, I'll just say a lot of them are in that camp, in that atheist anti-religion camp. So if you read some of these guys, um, it's very clear from their writings what, what their agenda is. But you can be in the middle of those groups. In fact, I think that's the, the, the best place to be, is to not, not get caught up in either, in, on either side of that equation because each do have their agenda and each are pretty much idiots in their own ways. And... So the the funny thing about the weird thing about the mythicist tradi- tradition is that you've got these um, all these atheists arguing that uh, that like Paul was essentially a, a mythicist. Well, not a mythicist, you know, they're mythicists, but Paul had this more mythical spiritual vision of of Jesus Christ, and and yet you don't have very many, if any, people actually believing that these days. 
and they use that as a reason to discount Christianity. But really, if, if that's true, and if you look back, then there were a, a, a substantial number of people back then who held this really sincere mythical vision of Jesus Christ and Christianity. And you don't have that today. Now, now you're either an atheist or you're a literalist, you know, broadly speaking. But it is possible if the if the theory is true, if the interpretation is true, to actually be a kind of a, a full, wholehearted um, mythicist, in, in like um, religious mythicist, to actually think about that in terms of oh, this actually may be true. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm glad. Real quick, I'm glad you said that because not being literal about it and and being a mythicist or seeing the truth of it, there, you know, it, it, it's not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to believe that it literally happened in other words there can be more truth to this whole event precisely because it's it happened on another level or it's a representation of of some symbolic event that occurred in some metaphysical uh Mm -hmm. kind of existence yeah and that's not even discounting that you know some things really did happen we just don't know what those things actually were because there's no there's no uh, actual evidence for it. You can't look at the Gospels and Acts and look at them as evidence. There's just so, some things in there might be true, but we have absolutely no way of verifying it. Some things we know aren't true for various reasons and looking at the texts and how things changed. But when you look back far enough, there's just this black hole where it's like, okay, something might have happened, but we have no idea what it is. In that case, there's still um, there's still a way of finding meaning. And you can find meaning... Um, like life-changing meaning in this stuff without giving up your like your critical faculties and your like without stopping to think essentially that's that those things are still possible and they are possible um, maybe moving on to maybe we can get a bit to the actual crucifixion like because the the story that that Paul presents is very simple there's no passion narrative there's basically you can sum it up in jesus took the form of uh of of a man was crucified died and rose again he was he was raised by the power of spirit the power of god and within that little nutshell there's all kinds of um you know things that grow out of it and but that's really what that what the story comes down to very simple and the way that ashworth brings out the kind of nuance in all of that is that for paul you can well for paul faith was an important concept but we don't really know what we that's just a word right now when you're appro- so when you're approaching things like like a newborn with a with a blank slate okay well there's this thing of faith well what is faith well you have to read paul to understand what he means by faith the the primary example that he gives is Abraham in the Old Testament. And the essence of that Abraham story, the things that Paul focuses on, are that he has, Abraham had total trust in the word of God that he received, despite any kind of contradiction. Because here is Abraham, this like hundred-year-old dude who, um, who's promised that his progeny will be the fathers of many nations. And his, you know, his wife's 90 years old or something. And then, and then she miraculously gives birth and has this child. And now God says, okay, now you got to sacrifice your firstborn son. 
well, okay, well, how does that mesh with me being, you know, I'm already a hundred, mm-hmm. you know, that I, I had that one chance with this one kid. What am I going to do? But, but in the story, Abraham has, you know, such, such faith, despite the contradiction that he's willing to sacrifice his own son. And of course, you know, God steps in at the last moment and says, Oh no, you don't have to do that. But, um, but he had that absolute trust, even in the face of death, death, in this case, death of his line, death of his son. And so Paul says that Abraham had the faith of Jesus, the faith of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? So what's the faith of Jesus? It's kind of the same thing. Um, for Paul, Jesus had such faith in the, in his father's, you know, word in his father's, um, will and message that he willingly went to death, willingly became, um, you know, the, the man, the Jesus without sin became sin, became a man, became mortal to, um, to fulfill this kind of, to, well, to fulfill everything essentially to, to, to be in the, to, to give his life willingly going to his death willingly, um, with such faith that he knows it's the right thing to do, but does it anyway, even though he loses himself, um, even though he will die, and then is raised afterwards. So there's the, the, the elements of faith are this going willingly to death and having this absolute, um, like, um, rock-steady trust in, in these higher, um, higher directions that are given. So those are the aspects of faith. And then for Paul, we we as in like you know the faithful or the the believers can then share in that faith have that same faith but how do we do that um what's the what's the way of getting there well for paul there are a few things uh we mentioned kind of like some of the some of the main ideas in the previous shows but one of the big ones is uh baptism so um, in baptism, the, you participate in that death and resurrection by the, by submerging in the water, you are being, you're dying, you're being buried. Well, you're being drowned, but the, the symbolism is that you're buried. You're sharing in the burial of, of Jesus. And then when you're raised out of the water, um, that's like your ascension, your resurrection. And the, um, so you're sharing in that experience, and for Paul, it is a baptism of spirit. So there's something, something that, something that happens, um, and baptism, like the actual act of you know being dipped in some water, is just a, like an external form. For Paul, the important thing is the, is receiving this, what uh, what Ashworth calls the first installment, or you know a deposit of the spirit. You get this little bit of spirit. You're being baptized in spirit. You see the same thing in the Gospel of Mark with. Uh, with um, John the Baptist and and Jesus' baptism and how Jesus will baptize with spirit. So you're being, there's something, there's a connection between this this crucifixion, this death that you experience along with Christ. It's like you're participating in this event with him, getting this spirit which has the power to bring life, to bring life to something dead, and then rising up and entering into that new life. This ties into the whole discussion that we had last week and the week before about the, fo- the nature of the fall, the nature of sin, because for Paul, this is really important. The, the nature of humanity is um, a state of deadness, is death itself, mortality. So this crucifixion is, uh, or this, well, this whole thing is a way of spirit coming into something that is dead 
in order to bring life to it. It's like receiving this kind of finer, higher energy that then vivifies or revivifies the body and brings it to life, uh, putting it into a new state, something that it hadn't been in before. So all of these, all of these ideas, like the like. Um, Ashworth describes it like this cathedral or the arch in a cathedral. All of the stones are important, like they all support each other to make this structure. So you can't really look at one individual aspect without looking at all of them at the same time because they all fit together to make this this more complex picture. But what it seems... Well, to go off in a slightly different direction, one more of these stones making up this arch is that for Paul, there is something extremely significant and important about specifically Jesus Christ's crucifixion. It is what allows something brand new to enter the world. So until that time, it's like the for him, the law was necessary. There was this childhood of, of, of mankind where there was kind of no possibility of um, of redemption, or at least there was always the the possibility, but it was more of like a, a thing in destiny in the future, something that would happen. But for all that time, you know, there was there was no Jesus, so there was no real there was no real possibility in the sense of it actually being able to happen at that time um, until that moment, until that moment in time of the of the actual crucifixion. And what that did was that in the in the story that. Um, and then it kind of the the small narrative that Paul tells about it is that how he puts it is that Jesus became sin. So you have this being with no sin who literally, in some sense, becomes sin. So what well what does that mean? Well, you can look at it in a number of ways. You can say, okay, well Jesus became mortal, you know, became something about but became human in some way, basically entered into the state of humanity. And then by becoming like the the almost the the representation or the the the, the nature of sin itself, even though he's this sinless being, by then going to death willingly Sin dies when Jesus dies because Jesus has become sin. So, so sin is killed in the crucifixion. This is kind of the trick that God played on the the demons and the powers is that uh, you know they didn't realize what was going on. Um, that by by allowing the crucifixion to happen and even engaging in the crucifixion, because in uh, like in the ascension of Isaiah, for instance, it's the demons, it's the powers that crucify Jesus Christ. It's not the the Jews like in the Gospels that. By doing it, they're kind of signing their own death warrant because they're actually fulfilling God's purpose when they think that they're kind of at war with God by by killing this individual. Mm-hmm. So by becoming sin and then dying as sin, sin is actually the thing being killed. Death is the thing being killed. So it's kind of this cool, weird reversal of expectations where... You kind of you're you're willing this this uh, this being this figure is willingly going to his own death, and then by dying he's killing all the bad stuff will with him, um, yeah. And so that event, whatever its nature, <clears throat> for Paul is it's kind of like this energizing event. It gives the it gives the energy and the power necessary for then that to be experienced by potentially everyone. So it's like what well, previously wasn't possible and feasible um, in you know within the the sphere of humanity now becomes possible, 
Uh, there's a couple ways of looking at that too. I kind of think of the more mundane examples as like the hundredth monkey syndrome, or just if you imagine, I, th I might have used this um, this kind of analogy before. If you imagine a kind of this fairy tale type land where there's a, a settlement of humans that are living in the in the midst of this vast wilderness, right? And there might be a mountain, or and then there's a you know a, a giant forest, and then but no one knows what's on the other side of the forest. It takes one person to make that journey to travel through the forest to to battle all the monsters and and uh, and wild animals and all of the just natural um, blockages and obstacles to get there in order to create the path that will then be followed by anyone else before then it's there's there's no real possibility of doing it because no one's done it before and no one or no one's done it successfully so there's no possibility for anyone in that settlement in that village to actually do it on uh, by themselves but the that first trailblazer by actually doing it then makes it possible for others it's like oh well, here's the path avoid that monster there you know go here turn there rest for a day here and then he goes and he finds some wonderful thing and he brings it back that's kind of the way i see the crucifixion is that it's, one person had to do it first in order to set the model for everyone else and for paul that was jesus christ who um, but it was more, it was more than just that for Paul, you know, this was this kind of like, um, cosmos shaking event. And I, I, there's a, a mystery there for me too, that I don't, you know, I haven't grasped the, the full significance of, I just know that it was that significant for Paul. So it's almost like there was this, but by, by that for Paul, for Paul, that, that killing of sin in, in Jesus, in the crucifixion actually did kill sin in some sense in everyone else because he says something like um yeah christ died in our place therefore and so therefore the therefore there is that all died in some real sense and so the way Ash, ashworth presents that is that now um now the well the identification was too strong the that this the sin in humanity was too, too strong we were too identified so identified with um the the the, the physical separateness that but results in all this selfishness self-importance and you know egoism that it's just too strong to see on our own we can't see that we need an external basically a mirror held up to present that image of ourselves to us before we see its significance and until that time, until that crucifixion event, that's just that just wasn't possible. What that crucifixion did was kind of like give us that little bit of energy, that little bit of power to then see it for themselves, for ourselves, and to then um, actually participate in that crucifixion, so that 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 uh, that event would play itself out in us too. And the way that Paul presents that playing itself out in us is that our old selfish self dies that's what's crucified and then the new life that is born is our new perspective our new self-perception um, and then our new way of living and that new way of living that's associated and, and comes out of this new self-perception that is the result of the crucifixion is a totally different state of being than the previous state of being being the state of deadness that humanity finds itself in so there's something just um there's something like powerful for Paul about that event that makes it possible then for everyone else to actually uh, experience that transformation for themselves. That that's pretty much what I wanted to underline in, in some of what you were saying, Harrison, because 
he was talking to all of these groups. He was writing his letters. He was meeting with all of them. And there had to have been something in what he was saying, both in person and in his letters, that was compelling enough that it did, in fact, have some kind of inner transformational effect on people such that now, 2,000 years later, we're still reading about it and thinking on it. And it's one of the world's greatest religions. Now, some things may have been twisted and, and malformed in its propagation and over the centuries. At the same time, you can't help but think that by sheer strength of his personality and character and conviction and the energy that he put behind his words to people that it did transmit some kind of powerful effect uh, such that his words were carried on and shared to a much greater extent. Well, I just want <clears throat> to talk just briefly about the issue of time here because we're dealing with stories that are so darn old you know like the the genesis account that paul bases his 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 theory basic of you know the divine history of humanity i mean this that genesis account goes back how many thousands of years from what we'd read in the origins of the world mythologies mm -hmm. i mean was it like 40 50,000 year old yeah, tales that were older. similar um like we're, when you know, so it's it's easy to kind of you know say, well, I don't believe in Jehovah, or I don't believe. I just it doesn't make sense to me that Jehovah would sacrifice his son, or but that it goes back to what you were discussing about um, this other level of of being able to understand the material, this um, understanding it in like a symbolic, allegorical, and also potentially just purely spiritual kind of way that he he had this experience and that in some way it's it's connected to stories that we have been telling ourselves about this cosmic drama that humanity has been on for years and years and explaining why we find ourselves in a condition that is so blind to reality so selfish so self-seeking and and continually um, degrading ourselves and our environment. And, you know, what can be done to change the state of being that we all have in order to arrive at some place at some other time that has also been promised in, you know, various myths and stories where we can be um, whole, you know, communal again, you know, the real just in some way more real have a better more of an impact be more effective in reality than you know this worldly flesh oriented types of pursuits that we you know that continue to to get us into trouble over and over again because we're so good at ignoring the stories that um, we've been told and the warnings that we've been given over millennia and millennia and millennia and there's rise of one empire fall of another i mean it it always seems to take oh, these stories seem to take different guises but for for Paul, what's really intriguing about this event is that it seems like it's a new chapter in this in this story. And that's how it's presented in Christianity, and that's how Paul presents it, as another chapter in this Judaic tradition, which is actually, you know, part of an even longer and 
bigger tradition, but that Christ's um, crucifixion, that there was something in there that like gave humanity a new ability, mm-hmm. some new way of dealing with the ravages of of time and the ravages of just earthly existence that they didn't that nobody could have like you said nobody could have found that on their own that it there was something divine some divine spark in an individual or you know in Paul or in an historical individual that um inspired Paul that this was um transmitted this was transmitted to humanity and it was Paul's mission to to transmit that information. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wonder, you know, when you, you use uh, examples like Abraham, like you're going to sacrifice his son, you know, obviously, you know, <laughs> my very first thought is like, oh, yeah, but, you know, I'm like, oh no, <laughs> like that. I don't like that kind of obedience. You know, that kind yeah. of obedience is, you know, it's strange to, you know, modern ears. Yeah. Um, but there's something to be said about conscience about something higher within the individual that is a little bit closer Mm -hmm. to the divine than you know whatever our whims are at the moment that there's something that people have some kind of connection to the divine that is um that is you know it's just like a hint you know of of what is right or 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 what is wrong or what you what you should be doing Mm -hmm. in life versus what is currently there and and some divine impulse to be you know mm-hmm. some divine impulse to be that is easily thwarted by our desire to not be because it's so much easier just to just to go along with the the state of of the world which is why i found it interesting the you know like the the reactions towards crucifixion by like the roman elite you know it was it was something that you just um that wasn't really talked about because it was such an ugly thing that, you know, polite company, you know, like today's modern intelligentsia, you know, we don't talk about torture. We just, we don't talk about those filthy things that go on in the shadows. It's just something that you don't want to talk about. Um, but here it is at the center of this new religion, as, almost as a way of saying, like, um, as this, of this way of bringing God out of the the hands of of so many individuals who have who just desire earthly glory you know earth you know people who want to have the the nice priestly hats and Mm -hmm. um it took god out of out of that realm and it brought it into the into um, the material world in the form of a man that anybody could empathize with Mm -hmm. um you know, there's because that's another big thing is that throughout history, clearly there have been worse things done to people than that crucifixion. That, but it's the symbol of what it is that every human, um, everyone knows that this is like the weight of sin and darkness in the world. Mm-hmm. This is that that's the weight of sin and darkness that that weighs on each and every one of us, and that there is redemption there. If it's done correctly, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like if, if you have that faith, there is, there is a resurrection. This bodily existence is not going to last forever. There mm-hmm. is, um, there is a promise for you now you know, that, you know, there's something like, this is the way now, if you follow this way, you know, if you follow this conscience, then you can move from the world of the f- darkness and just fleshly delights. And you can move into a world 
of meaning and of like these early Christian communities, which is to me, it's very, it's very fascinating. It it sounds like a like a cosmic battle, you know, mm-hmm. that you know just re- as relayed throughout time, all of these different stories that we just can't seem to get away from. And um, I mean, I I, I still uh, I. I still find this very intriguing and very interesting and hard to kind of wrap my my head around, but I find it really heartening too at the same time. And I think there's there's a lot of significance still there that we haven't mined yet, and we haven't really plumbed the depths of you know the Christian message even in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot in there that I want to respond with. I think I'll limit it to maybe two or three. One is this theme of of the reversal of things in in Paul and in Christianity. So for Paul, one of the the ways he phrased it is that in order to become wise, we have to become fools. And Adam and Eve um, desired wisdom and became fools. Humanity desired desired wisdom, thought themselves wise, and became fools instead. And then from the other perspective, the, the people who are truly wise are perceived as fools by the rest of the world. So for Paul, the society in which in which he lived, and just the state of humanity, is such that it it um, it glorifies the things. It, well, it, it glorifies certain things like strength, power, um, our, our world today, intelligence, um, competence on a very basic level. Um, we we glorify that. We worship it. But these things w- were all totally unimportant to Paul. Um, so for um, also this religious status thing. So everyone in a religion. Um, in a big organized religion, there's this kind of um, channeling of energy upwards. So, you know, you've got the Pope, you've got your priests, your bishops, you've got your, your rabbis, you've got whatever, your imams. All these people, this, there's this energy directed upwards. And these are things to be, the, to be admired and to, be, and to strive towards. But all of that is, for Paul is no, not important. That stuff is all fleshly. Human status, um, human power. Um, the people doing the crucifying, these are the people that are elevated to positions of power. These are the, the power-possessing beings. But for in Christianity, that's all reversed. It is in weakness that there is strength. So for Paul, Paul pres- presents himself as full of weaknesses, b- bodily weaknesses. Um, he's he's not a you know he's not a, a, a gladiator or a, you know a, engaging in any um, you know Greek Olympian games. He's just this you know guy with some some physical problems and but within that weakness and even with with his flaws like he says that he's not a very good speaker um with within those flaws what the people respond to is the power of the spirit kind of speaking through him there is a power within him something that is not recognized as powerful by the rest of the world so it's in weakness that there is power and in and in worldly foolishness that there is true wisdom and it's the people in the world who are perceived as these intelligent, powerful beings who are actually um, anything but that. There's that re- total reversal going on. Um, another thing, <clears throat> another thing that is this idea of um, there's this kind of divine spark in everyone. Now, last week I read a little portion um, from Ashworth's book from a quote in first Corinthians and I kind of had a joke about it because, um, Paul says, but if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, his wrongness is exposed by all. He is scrutinized by all. 
The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare God is really among you. So I was kind of joking that, oh, you know, that's, you know, it's not very likely to happen. You get this newbie that, you know, comes into your church meeting, and then you just tell them everything that's wrong with him. And then what are the chances of, oh, the falling on their feet and being like, oh, God is with you. You've shown me the, the truth of my ways. But um, that's kind of, I, I said it as a joke, it's, but it's not really, it's not exactly what, what Paul is talking about. And I was trying to think of uh, of an example of what that might be. And since we've done shows on Gurdjieff recently, that's essentially what Gurdjieff did. And you can see that there that there is a response. There is a range of responses because tons of people, you know, early in, let's say, Gurdjieff's Russian days came to hear him talk where he was saying exactly that. He was telling people that uh, he was exposing the, you know, how does he put it, exposing the secrets of their heart and uh, exposing all these people to scrutiny. But the way he did it to start out with wasn't by identifying everything personally wrong with any individual. He did that too. But he did it by presenting these generalities, just as Paul does, about the nature of humanity. When you hear, the nat- when you hear an exposition on the nature of humanity and how fundamentally flawed it really is, part of you will respond to that by um, by saying, oh, I'm part of that. Mm-hmm. And if there's that spark in you that, that recognizes that as being true even on a little level, then that will, that will be attracted to that information and, and accept, oh, you know what, that is true. And that can be the first stage, the first step in this process, of, in this transformation process of a radical reappraisal of one's self-perception. So on that note, I wanted to read a little bit from In Search of the Miraculous on one of the things Gurdjieff said. And this is directly related to the conversation we're having about um, the crucifixion and the resurrection. So Gurdjieff says, in relation to what we, were spe- what we are speaking of now, this book of aphorisms that he mentioned um, says the following, a man may be born, but in order to be born, he must first die. And in order to die, he must first awake. In another place it says, When a man awakes, he can die. When he dies, he can be born. We must find out what this means. To be awake, to die, to be born. These are three successive stages. If you study the Gospels attentively, you will see that the references are often made to the possibility of being born. Several references are made to the necessity of dying, and there are very many references to the necessity of awakening. Watch, for ye know not the hour, uh, the day and the hour, and so on. But these three possibilities of man, to awake or not to sleep, to die and to be born, are not set down in connection with one another. Nevertheless, this is the whole point. If a man dies without having awakened, he cannot be born. If a man is born without having died, he may become an immortal thing. Thus, the fact that he has not died prevents a man from being born. The fact of his not having awakened prevents him from dying. And should he be born without having died, he is prevented from being. We have already spoken enough about the meanings of being born. This relates to the beginning of a new growth of essence, the beginning of the formation of individuality, the beginning of the appearance of one indivisible I. So I'll stop there for a bit. This so this all just relates directly to Ashworth and what Paul was saying and doing about the, uh, Paul says that for himself, that he, that before the law, he knew no sin. It was because of the law that sin entered into him. And when sin entered, I died. So 
Paul's true eye died with the coming of the law and the entering of sin and the, basically the the identification of himself with his with his um, you know separate selfishness essentially and it's only when that selfishness dies that the that true eye can emerge or reemerge so there we have this this death and being reborn the selfishness must die in order for the real eye the real conscience to then be born and the real conscience that's essence that's something in the heart that's something that has to do with a, a depth of feeling and a responsivity to um to the the world and the things higher and so we've got that um i'll read a bit more but in order to be able to it oh because i'll get i want to read a bit more because there's this third thing this third factor of becoming awake so in Paul, this is one of the things that is just kind of hinted at. It's like I said last week, it's not like Paul's presenting an instruction manual for transformation. It's like, you can't just read Paul and all of a sudden, oh, I'm spiritually transformed. I'm a totally new being. There's more to the process than that. So, and the process, you know, can be found in numerous places. And I think, you know, Gurdjieff is one of the best places, but um, this is what Gurdjieff writes now. So, but in order to be able to attain this, or at least begin to attain it, a man must die. That is, he must free himself from a thousand petty attachments and identifications which hold him in the position in which he is. He is attached to everything in his life, attached to his imagination, attached to his stupidity, attached even to his sufferings, possibly to his sufferings more than to anything else. He must free himself from this attachment. Attachment to things, identification with things, keep alive a thousand useless eyes in man. Letter I, like I am this, I am that. These eyes must die in order that the big eye may be born. But how can, they be, how can they be made to die? They do not want to die. It is at this point that the possibility of awakening comes to the rescue. To awaken means to realize one's nothingness. That is, to realize one's complete and absolute mechanicalness and one's complete and absolute helplessness. And it is not sufficient to realize it philosophically in words. It is necessary to realize it in clear, simple, and concrete facts, in one's own facts. When a man begins to know himself a little, he will see in himself many things that are bound to horrify him. So long as a man is not horrified at himself, he knows nothing about himself. A man has seen in himself something that, that horrifies him. He decides to throw it off, stop it, put an end to it. But however many efforts he makes, he feels that he cannot do this, that everything remains as it was. Here he will see his impotence, his helplessness, and his nothingness. Or again, when he begins to know himself, a man sees that he has nothing that is, that is his own, that is, that all he, that he has regarded as his own, his views, thoughts, convictions, tastes, habits, even faults and vices, all these are not his own, but have either been formed through imitation or borrowed from somewhere ready-made. In feeling this, a man may feel his nothingness. And in feeling his nothingness, a man should see himself as he really is, not for a second, not for a moment, but constantly, never forgetting it. This continual consciousness of his nothingness and of his helplessness will eventually give a man the courage to die, that is, to die not merely mentally or in his consciousness, but to die in fact, and to renounce actually and forever those aspects of himself which are either unnecessary from the point of view of his inner growth, or which hinder it. These aspects are first of all his false eye, 
and then all the fantastic ideas about his individuality, will, consciousness, capacity to do, his powers, initiative, determination, and so on. But in order to see a thing always, one must first of all see it even only for a second. All new powers and capacities of realization come always in one and the same way. At first they appear in the form of flashes at rare and short moments. Afterwards they appear more often and last longer until, finally, after very long work, they become permanent. The same thing applies to awakening. It is impossible to awaken completely all at once. One must first begin to awaken for short moments. But one must die all at once and forever, after having made a certain effort, having surmounted a certain obstacle, having taken a certain decision from which there is no going back. This would be difficult, even impossible for a man, if it were not for the slow and gradual awakening which precedes it. But there are a thousand things which prevent a man from awakening, and which keep him in the power of his dreams. In order to act consciously with the intention of awakening, it is necessary to know the nature of the forces which keep man in the state of sleep. And so that's kind of the, well, again, that all relates back to what Paul is saying. Is, and it gives a bit more, uh, you know, Gurdjieff goes into a bit more detail. We've got more of Gurdjieff's writings about what, what are the actual examples that can be reflected back to me of my own state of sin, my own death, my own, uh, you know, condemnation to mortality. These are all examples that I have to then see in myself. That's the, all of these things that I see in myself are the awakening. I have to see them before I can die. And so this is the process that Paul's talking about, about presenting um, like new members of the church or outsiders with this vision of themselves. It's a vision, not, not necessarily at first specifically of, their, of all their own flaws, but that will be a necessary part, part of the process. It's like you have to have the knowledge first, you have to have the awareness of what the reality of the situation is. That can be presented in a, you know, in a lecture like Gurdjieff was doing, or in you know, a, a group talk like Paul and, and his congregations were doing. And then you start seeing things in yourself. You start seeing glimpses of yourself. You get reflections of yourself as people, uh, like the people around you, the people who are engaged in this process can then ref reflect that back to you. You get a vision of who you really are, what you're really like, um, your hidden motivations, the things that you won't admit to yourself, that, you're, that you won't admit to others. I'm going to interrupt you, Harrison, because that, um, this really comes down to the crux of self-work and uh, the difficulty of seeing oneself and being honest with oneself about one's motivations and what one's actions are truly informed by. And so we're talking about this from the outside, right? And presumably everyone who's listening to this has more than just an intellectual interest in, in how this actually works. Because aside from reading Gurdjieff or, or going to a a church with a particularly or or some kind of uh, religious uh, congregation with some kind of uh, strong, powerful, righteous individual or going to therapy. How, what, what is this experience for individually? How do uh, less the interaction of a, of a group of people that you're in touch with who are attempting to be honest and to show you your ways. We, because all of these, ideas have some validity uh, if if you've ever experienced it in in the attempt to be better in the attempt to uh consider how one is living lies in certain ways 
But what is that individual experience when one is encountering uh, the truth? Uh, Corey, you look like you're ready to, to bust, so please go ahead. Crucifixion. Crucifixion. <laughs> and, and by crucifixion, I don't think you mean buying Things. a two-by-four and having somebody nail you to it. No. No. So uh, this is a, a, a very painful experience that you consciously decide to have to be aware of the physical symptoms of of the realization of sitting in the the thoughts of the realization of the of the honesty of the the truth of the matter in regards to oneself so by that you mean a, a kind of a symbolic crucifixion of the self not pinning oneself to the symbolic two by four and squirming and not and not seeking relief at least right away is is what i think you're getting at yeah right <laughs> okay I, I i mean yeah i i agree i mean i think that that was like a perfect way to sum up exactly what you know we've been talking about this whole time is what is that experience that gurdjieff is is talking about and what you know i'm sure many of our listeners have gone through to some degree or another uh, is just is just that that seeing yourself for what you are and what you will probably amount to and what you can accomplish in one lifetime and all the things that you've done to other people all the thing you know all of your apathy your ignorance your cowardice and all of the silly things that you let yourself get you know waste your time with when you could be putting your time to better things and all the excuses a, you make for yourself and, and excuses yes excuses excuses and you know, over, I mean, it's, it's not like, like Gurdjieff was saying, it's obviously it's not an overnight thing that, that it's, um, but that there is something at the end of that, that process there, there, if you follow that through, if you are brutally, if you accept, you know, just the, the, that dark night of the soul, if you accept the crucifixion part of being crucified, that there is resurrection at the end of it. Right, there's hope. There is hope. There's a, I mean, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and about um, 500 billion times out of 500 billion and one time, it's just a freight train coming your way. <laughs> but on that last time, you know, there is still hope that you will awaken and that you will, the scales will fall from your eyes and you will understand and you will be present for your own, you know, coming to be yeah. coming alive from you know this just this dark sleep that you had been yeah. in where you were completely oblivious to your own thoughts your own emotions your own effect on other people and all of a sudden there's you know there's some um, there's a great gift mm -hmm. right there's some great gift that's you know bestowed upon you know this this individual when they're able to see and they are awake i mean yeah. i don't know what awake i don't know what it would be like to be awake but you know i still i think that mm -hmm. th that really comes down to what we're talking about here is that that is the crucifixion and you can't have the resurrection without the crucifixion yeah and i, I would just add i you know the both of you have used the term process a mm -hmm. couple of times this isn't you know, while we might have periods of intensity in our lives where an incredibly big almost monumental lesson or experience has been learned and processed doesn't ever end. And it would be a mistake to think that 
having reached some marginally better place with ourselves and in our lives that that would excuse us from continuing to strive. So that seems to be one of the things to accept about some of this material. And that mm -hmm. is that it really is never ending. The, the work of self growth and actualization and burning the, the dross off mm -hmm. is an ongoing thing. And it needn't all be difficult and painful. I think that, I think that with the capacity of, ex of experiencing remorse of conscience or consciousness and feeling pain uh, also makes way for a place of joy within us that, that can be sincere. So there may also be a, a fuller range of experience available to us and this isn't to say that we should seek out suffering, but just that giving, uh, giving it its due. Well, should, we should sh seek out a certain kind of suffering, for sure. Okay, well, maybe you can mm -hmm. be specific about Well, that. there's, like Gurdjieff said, there's useless suffering mm -hmm. that people are ad identified with and addicted to, and then there's actual intentional or conscious suffering. And... The conscious suffering would be engaging in this in this process. That's one of them, because I think you brought up well. We brought up both faith and hope, and you know, in what you were saying, Corey, about how there's a, a hope in this thing that people are lacking. Like people are totally lacking in faith and hope, and I think they're lacking that because they lack the knowledge. They lack kind of the theory behind what happens. They don't know that if they respond in a certain way to feedback of the, of themselves, that it'll it'll actually have a benefit for them and the people around them. They don't see the they don't see the value in having things having their you know the secrets of their heart exposed to themselves and others. It's painful. It hurts, and so we keep it. To ourselves we don't share we put up um, barriers between our own understanding of it or and our own seeing of it so you i mean you you can see this in fights between spouses all the time and in family members and in co-workers where you know you you point something out to someone else and they're just totally rejecting of it oh that's not true i'm not like that or yourself you can probably see it in yourself someone says something oh well i'm not like that it's like and well you are in a lot of cases and th so by by presenting an actual picture of the way humanity actually works, the, the, the kind of the, the possibilities inherent in this process, that in itself opens up a place for faith and hope. Because the faithful response is to basically have faith in this process, that, the, that having this, going through this experience of seeing myself and suffering from it because I don't like the picture of what's that's being pre presented to me, that there, there is hope. Faith and hope are like intimately tied together. There is hope for a, a, you know, a better future. That there is light at the end of this tunnel. That's that is a crucifixion in itself. And the faith is what gets you through it. Because well, I know, I know that this can happen. And you, and you can know by these little tiny experiences that build up over time. You get used to it. You get calibrated to it. Okay, I can see how this works in myself. I've experienced it once before. I can experience it again. And that faith in the process then lets you open yourself up to it to the point where you can seek a form of suffering. You can um, actually, um, and, and part of that can be things that you do for yourself where it's like you have, 
all of these frustrations and annoyances, and th those in themselves are kind of useless suffering. And then you can suffer by not fulfilling the, th the response that you want to have. If someone's pissing you off and ordinarily you'd either get in a fist fight or tell them off or do something, you can consciously suffer by observing your own annoyance, observing your own frustration, and then doing the opposite. That will create a lot of friction in you. You won't enjoy it because part of you just really wants to lay into this other guy for being such a, you know, such a douchebag. But that in, it, but that in itself is a part of the conscious suffering. Another part of the con conscious suffering is really looking at yourself in cer certain situations and the way you act as a douchebag. Because ordinarily we just want to justify everything we do and make excuses for everything and well, we're right, you know, I'm totally justified in acting like this because that other guy's being an asshole. So I'm perfectly justified. Well, no, you can stop and you can look at yourself and say, actually, this isn't very flat of this isn't a very flattering picture of myself you know I, I have this perception of myself as this great guy that just does great things everyone loves me i've got all these talents but really when i look when i look in myself i see this aspect of my nothingness you know i see that there it's not very pretty inside um, all the things that i hate in other people and that frustrate me and annoy me about other people well they're all present in me too i do those same things mm -hmm. so there are and, th and those it's are because just, I do those same things yeah. that I, I project them onto other people right. without seeing them in myself. Right. So this idea of intentional suffering is this kind of proactive attempt at fighting against all of those habits and mechanical behaviors that keep us habituated to a self-centered, selfish, egotistical self-gratifying point of view. And this isn't something I don't think, we're not saying that this is something you can attempt to correct or address in one fell swoop. Uh, this is something that, that, that takes you know, work and seeing. It's just like, you know, I'll bring up my analogy with exercise again. You're not gonna go into a gym after a workout or two and look like Arnold. This takes work, this takes a persistent uh, consistent, focused, driven, aimed at attempt at becoming healthier. Yes, and with that, we hope that you enjoyed our series on Christianity, <laughs> and we hope that um, you found new depths to plumb um, in the you know the Christian faith and the the mythos and how you know and, and we're going to take something away from all the dots that we've uh, been connecting between Gurdjieff and Christianity and just basic good old common sense. And with that, we're going to wrap up today's show, and we hope that you will share this on Twitter and Facebook and like us on YouTube and subscribe. Have a good week, everybody, and we'll see you next time.